1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events. It's not good to live in your head is basically what I've learned from my time as being a lovesick nerd. <laughs> we got to find that magazine. It's got to be in here somewhere, right? This place is like a candy store for nerds.
2: I'm Trisha Bobita. I'm Greta Johnson. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Deborah Blum. She's a science journalist who's also a poisons nerd.
0: And we'll hear your voicemails dedicating songs to the nerdy loves of your
2: life. But first, for this Valentine's Day episode, we're going to check in with our movie nerd friend,
3: Joe Uchel.
0: Joe interviewed some horror filmmakers, and turns out there's more romance in those slasher films than we originally thought.
3: I went and talked to two groups of screenwriters. One of them were adorable and married. They would hate being called adorable. John and Lottie Knowles, who wrote a movie called Chastity Bites, which is about the real-life 16th century blood countess Elizabeth Bathory, who used to bathe in the blood of virgins to stay eternally young. You
4: didn't think there was something spooky about that woman? No! she's foreign. They're more elegant and cultured and stuff.
3: If she was alive and still teaching abstinence-only education in New Mexico.
4: (laughs) It's a pretty amazing premise, I gotta say.
3: He directs and she writes, They're as perfect for each other as Siegfried and Roy. Well,
1: I think think the real story here is that we are two nerds in love (laughs) who like making horror movies
0: together. Yeah,
3: exactly.
0: So does a husband and wife team that makes horror movies together like Valentine's Day? We hate Valentine's Day.
3: Hate it. They can list all kinds of horror movies, which have very, very important, sturdy romances to them. Lottie had a whole list of them, but uh, this one was my favorite.
4: I get really hot every time. Same Michael Bean when he says, I came through time for you, Sarah Connor, in The Terminator. Totally. I came through time for you, Sarah. I love you.
1: That's a good example. And, you know, if you think about it, Terminator, which I know isn't straight-up horror movie, but that's a love story. Yeah. At its core, it's actually a love story. And how beautiful it is that this guy was sent back in time to protect this woman and turns out to be the father of the person who sent him in the first place. You know what yeah. I mean? That's, that's really cool.
5: Yeah, he just had a photo of her in his bleak world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So John and Lottie Knoll's husband and wife team that created the movie Chastity Bites, which is out the week of Valentine's Day, seems like an odd time of year to be coming out with horror movies.
3: It's a scary time of year for a lot of people. And I think for a lot of horror movie makers, it'd be the first to tell you that love is a very important emotion in horror movies. It gives characters a value for when you kill them. So instead of just being a nameless chalk outline, you grow attached to somebody who then dies. I also spoke to John Portanova, who co-wrote and produced a movie called The Invoking, which is all about relationships. You must be Sam. I
5: am.
6: Eric. Sam's grandfather used to almost land around here.
3: It was a lot like a uh, Dawson's Creek episode with a guy stabbing people. And also there could be ghosts.
1: (laughs) My favorite horror movies are ones like the original Halloween, uh, an American werewolf in London, The Descent, where through getting to know the characters, either knowing their interactions with each other or their drama that they're in that maybe you can relate to, that is what's really going to make you care about when they start dying.
2: What did you say? Something's happening to
5: me. Sam, your father wasn't a good man. I don't know what you saw, Sam, but it's real.
2: I feel like there's so much I'm not remembering.
1: I've actually heard a lot of people say that they see The Invoking as a kind of a love story because Eric holds such a candle for Sam from when they were kids and their interaction could have been out of some, you know, romantic drama as opposed to the horror movie that they happen to be in. As far as the whole idea that horror is a genre that punishes women, there are definitely some movies that aren't good that do maybe take that tact. But for the most part, honestly, I know so many female horror fans and it's because the whole final girl trope that started with like Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween or like Olivia Hussey in black Christmas, where the final character is usually a strong woman who understands what's going on. And so she's going to triumph where useless
3: authority or her boyfriend who almost always dies fail. That's actually a point that John and Lottie Knowles, the two people behind Chastity Bites are really adamant about too.
4: I actually think the horror industry has been leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the industry. There are some horror movies that are not or that come off as misogynistic, of course. But there's also, I think, a pretty grand tradition of strong female characters. Throughout history, you know, women have usually been more of like sort of an emotional conduit. And so it's easier, I think, for male and female viewers maybe to feel that sense of fear when they see a female character in peril.
3: So another thing I asked John was uh, what his romantic advice to the kids would be. Don't go off alone
1: with your, uh, your love on a dark night. Houses are nice. Houses have locks on their doors. Just, you know, have a nice date at home, you know, Rent Return of Living Dead and watch that. Snuggle up. I really like
2: that John went practical with this advice. You know, it wasn't like, hey, if you are the nerdy best friend, don't give up. There's hope someday. It's just like, hey, don't get yourselves into trouble. Don't do stupid things.
3: They're very pragmatic people, the horror movie people.
2: Thanks to our film correspondent, nerd friend, Joe Uchel, for that. And now it's time for a conversation with Deborah Blum.
0: Deborah teaches science journalism at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She's the author of fascinating books about strange but true stories in the history of science.
2: Her latest book is The Poisoner's Handbook, which was just released as a film for PBS. Tricia and I were just talking about how you're like our favorite sort of nerd.
7: I am a total nerd. I'm a geek, but that's a nice thing to say.
0: It sounds like you really didn't have a choice in the matter because this runs in your family.
7: Yeah, daughter of a scientist. And I kind of grew up in what I think of as the house of science, which mostly means that throughout my childhood, we had postdocs at the dinner table, right, all the time, or hanging out for picnics. So, I I mean, I just really grew up in it. When my dad used to take us down to his lab, and when he couldn't figure out what else to do with us, and we'd just putz around in the beakers and test tubes.
2: I love that, especially because I think a lot of dads might have said, oh, no, sweetie, like, don't you have better things to do? You don't want to spend time in this lab. But it sounds like he really helped foster that curiosity.
7: I'm one of four girls. And he was always the kind of dad who said, I think this is amazing and interesting, and I want to share that with you. You know, when you're a third-grade girl and you're getting a chemistry set for Christmas, you're sometimes going, huh? But I look back on it, and I think how much that shaped my childhood. And it wasn't just that he took us to the lab, but he took us on a bug-collecting trips, He brought home creepy crawlers, right? We had snakes and spiders and containers on our dining room table. I think that hugely influenced the way I saw the world as a fascinating place in which you looked at everything and said, where did this come from? And how does this work? And why is this this way? So yeah, he made an enormous difference. Can you tell us a little about the flying helium
0: field balloons that were designed to attract bees? Oh,
7: He was working with bees in Ottawa, Canada, with a scientist there, and they were looking at the pheromones that are used by bees as sex attractants. And the basic experiment, as I understand it, is that you took the known chemical formula of that particular pheromone, and then you just tweaked it. So, you know, what if we drop a carbon here? What if we add a couple of nitrogens here? So they were doing all kinds of variations on the original formula, mostly trying, I think, to tease out what was it in that formula that pulled the male bees in. And drone bees are not stinging bees. The worker bees are the ones that sting. So what they would do is they'd fill these large balloons with helium float them up where they had a whole lot of bee colonies in hives around that area with cotton pads soaked with variations on this particular chemical compound and because they were scientists on a limited budget and they needed someone to just hold the balloons and so my father (laughs) volunteered my younger sister than I I was 15 I think and She was 13 to hold these balloons, and you'd stand there, and there'd be just this cloud of drones. Sometimes they thought you were the coolest thing in the country. And my father would be sitting on a fence with a mechanical clicker counting the number of bees for the study and shouting, they don't sting, don't run away. (laughs) (laughs) We did this actually for weeks on and off during the summer, and we never got stung. Actually, I mean, I've been stung by bees, but interestingly, never in that experiment where I was surrounded by so many of them. Where you were literally
2: sexually attracting bees to you.
7: (laughs) My father was constantly showing the stuff off and experimenting. At one point, he was studying the venom of tarantulas, and he had a postdoc who had come over from Switzerland and They had this little electric device, and they would shock the tarantula, and the venom would drool out, and they'd take it out and study it. And he just loved these tarantulas. He thought they were the coolest thing. So when I moved into my first apartment as a student at the University of Georgia, he gave me a tarantula for a housewarming present. Oh, how nice. I had her for two years. I was studying Russian at the time, so her name was Sasha.
0: That's such a beautiful way to be exposed to science, too, that it's not something dry in a book with no pictures. To be running around and having things crawl over you and swarm you, it's hard not to think about the real-life implications of science when you're being taught in the field as a
7: child. I never saw it as dry or abstract. And the other thing is, and I realized this later as I became a science journalist, I was never afraid of it, right? I had grown up with too many scientists and Too many postdocs and too much, you know, sort of messing around with the experiments to some extent, so that I was never afraid. I never said, oh, I'm not smart enough to get this, or what if I ask the wrong question? And I think that was a huge help to me, that it was always an adventure and kind of an inquiry, but it was never scary.
0: To be a good communicator in journalism, you have to not be afraid of people who are objectively, on a specific topic, much smarter than you.
7: That's exactly right. And when I'm teaching science writing here at the University of Wisconsin, where I, I teach it about every other year, I'll say to my students, you know, don't go in there thinking I'm dumb or this person is so much smarter than I am. This person is much better trained in this area than you are. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're smarter than you.
0: Can you talk a little about your process when you decide that something is book-worthy? A lot of times a
7: book agent will actually say to a client, why don't you write a magazine story first, (laughs) right, and figure out if you're interested enough in this topic that you want to stick with it for a couple of years. Because the kind of nonfiction books that I do, you're really talking about a couple of years of inquiry. I had always, always been interested in chemistry. I loved the beautiful, fundamental ways that it explained how things work. I started thinking about wanting to write a book that got some of that across, but wanting to do it in a way that people who didn't love chemistry, because that's the interesting audience for me, not the people who already love science, but the ones who don't necessarily might find chemistry fascinating. I started just thinking first about how interesting the chemistry of poisons are. Devious ways that they are able to use our own biological systems against us. For instance, a broad-spectrum poison like thallium travels in the potassium channels in the body. It's very clever. And eventually, what I realized my question was, because all good stories start with a question that you want to answer, was, well, what was it like before we knew? How to solve a poison murder? What was it like in the days before we actually could find these compounds in a body? How much murder could we actually get away with? And who changed that? And all of those questions led me to Boisner's Handbook.
2: That is super cool. I love that idea of clever chemicals. It's just really fun.
7: I still think of them that way. And I like the thallium example. But so many of them, when you sort of drill down to how they work... You think, well, this is one devious compound. And for our listeners
0: who might not be as familiar with the Poisoner's Handbook, we're not talking about sneaking poison into everyday medicine, right? We're talking about the hidden poisonous properties of things that were already in your cabinet.
7: Right. I called it the Poisoner's Handbook because it's both the story of these two crusading early 20th century scientists who are trying to figure out how to solve poison murders and threats. But it's a handbook of poisons. So it's also the story of poisons from arsenic to thallium to mercury. And you're absolutely right that one of the main points when you start looking at the story of those poisons is how many of them, and this would be true today as well, were sort of compounds that we cheerfully mix into our everyday lives. If you go back into the 19th century, even the early 20th, you find arsenic and dyes and cosmetics, you find lead is used to color candy. You find mercury as an antiseptic, so these were both readily accessible lethal substances, and they were part of the cosmetics box and where you kept your medications and the stuff under the kitchen sink. and And we've changed those formulas some, but yeah, I could walk through my kitchen and my bathroom today and find similar things. We have this fascinating relationship with poisonous compounds. They're often very useful and very dangerous at the same time.
0: I still can't believe she stood there calmly while she was swarmed by bees as a child.
1: Beads. Bees? Beads. Beads!
4: Job's not on board.
1: How hard can it be?
2: If you ask me, that is like serious nerd girl cred right there.
0: (laughs) That's the indelible Deborah Blum. You can find links to all of her work at nerdatpodcast.com.
2: Since Valentine's Day is coming up, we asked you last week to leave us some voicemails dedicating songs to the nerd loves of your life.
0: Here are some of your dedications. I am calling to give
7: a Valentine's shout-out to my husband, Ryan Orr, with the song Spring Wind by Jack Johnson. One of the lyrics is... It's another day. The spring
5: wind blew my list of things to do
7: away. My husband's always telling me that my list of things to do is entirely too long, and I just need to settle down and relax. We're always nerding out to eco stuff, like watching 180 degrees south together.
5: In a mucked-up lovely river, I cast my little fly. Hi, Trisha and Greta. This is Lauren children the great nerd love of my life, Is my best friend, Emily. She's in New Zealand right now living just the most adventurous, fabulous life. And she's been dreaming and dreaming of doing that. And I'm just so proud of her. So I think of her often. But also she made me just the most nerd about Coldplay. And it's something that not everyone totally understands. And a lot of people think is ridiculous. But Emily and I love Coldplay in a way that I don't really know if many people love certain things. So I would like to dedicate Vila La Vida by Coplay to her. I used to the this just takes me back to the first time we saw Coldplay together and it was for the Viva La Vida tour, and it was just the most nerd-out moment of Emily in my life. So, happy Valentine's Day to all of you.
1: I used to the dice. Feel-
5: Hi, Nerdette. This
6: is Sarah in Chicago. So, one of the things I nerd-out about is Bertolt Brecht. One year, I was doing an MFA in theater directing, And I needed to take summer classes so I could get the financial aid, so I could pay my rent and buy food. So I took this intensive German class, and I am not a language learning nerd. That thing in your brain that lets people pick up languages, mine turned off when I was, I don't know, four. But I took this German class. And one day I was in the library about four weeks into German class, and I was in the theater section, and they've got wrecked in German. And I just found a copy of Mutter Courage und ihre Kinder, and I flipped it open and started skimming, and I found two sentences in German that I could understand. They were very simple sentences. It was something like, His name is Swiss cheese, I am his mother. But still. I understood those words in the language in which Brecht had put them to paper. So in honor of my German teachers that summer, Frau Ranga und Frau Wozniak, I would like to dedicate from Threepenny Opera the song of the insufficiency of human struggling, because that's what trying to learn German felt like.
4: A man lives off his head, his head won't see him through. Inspect your own what lives off that, at most a louse
2: or two. For this bleak existence, man is never sharp enough. Thanks to those of you and who left us voicemails exist. with your nerd love dedications. You
0: can always call us to give us ideas for great lady nerds of history we should be talking about. Tell us what you just can't get enough of lately. Or just say hi. I would really love more voicemails that just say hi. 312-600-5638. Cocktails
2: before homework?
0: Yes, our booze nerd, Rebecca Polson, has a boozy hot chocolate recipe that is perfect for Valentine's Day, or really any day, because it's cold and who doesn't need a boozy hot chocolate in their life?
4: As a little nerd at Valentine, I'm letting you guys in on the ultimate Trecho self-drink. I discovered this for Hot Chocolate on Tasting Table, the original recipes from Stephen Cole at Chicago's Barrel House Flat. This isn't some super sugary drink spiked with rum and served under a pile of whipped cream. This is serious hot chocolate, no marshmallows needed. Three kinds of chocolate and two kinds of dairy combine to make the richest hot cocoa you've ever tasted. The slightly bitter Fernet Branca cuts the sweetness while adding a boozy kick. Yeah, this drink is truly, totally terrible for you. It's Valentine's Day. It's cold out. Let it go. First, you're going to chop two ounces of 60% cacao dark chocolate and two ounces of unsweetened chocolate. Put that in a large pot with three tablespoons of cocoa powder, a half teaspoon fine sea salt, and one and a half cups sugar. Stir in one and three quarters cups whole milk and a quarter cup heavy cream. Melt over medium-low heat, stirring frequently so that nothing sticks to the pot. When the chocolate is melted, take it off of the heat and add 1.5 cups of brunette and 7 dashes of Angostura bitters. This yields about 7 cups and is great for a group or a snowy day in with your sweetheart. However, if your plans for the week involve less canoodling by the fire and more dancing by yourself in your awesome supernatural ice castle, you should still totally make a whole pot of this. Stop after the chocolate has melted, but before you've added the booze. Then add an ounce and a half of fernet and a dash of bitters directly to your coffee mug and top it with a healthy ladle full of cocoa. Let the remaining chocolate cool, then cover it and put it in the fridge. As long as you warm it up slowly, the chocolate reheats great, and you can have a boozy sweet treat every day for a week. Thanks to Rebecca Polson. Time now for homework.
2: First, you guys, I have some really, really important, serious homework. I need you to just take a minute and take stock of your lives. Oh, boy. And just listen to these three words.
3: Treat yourself.
2: This is always good advice, Greta, but why this week? It's because of Valentine's Day. You know, I think it's really easy, especially if you're a single nerd person out there, to get hung up on why you don't have a certain person or whatever. And so I just want to take this minute to remind you to treat yourself Go buy some flowers, Trisha. No. Or go get a massage. Nope. Or maybe just do none of these things. take yourself out for a nice meal. All right. I might do that. Do something nice for yourself. That's all. Thank you. I'm, I'm off the soapbox
4: now.
7: Treat yourself 2011.
4: Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to?
7: Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods.
0: Treat <laughs> <laughs> And our other piece of homework for you this week comes from science journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner Deborah Blum.
7: If you're really interested in the history of toxicology, there was a book that came out called The Inheritor's Powder. It's by Sandra Hempel, and it looks at a kind of mid-19th century Scientists and case in which we start seeing the fundamentals of toxicology put into place.
2: Thanks again to Deborah Blum for joining us. Her latest book is called The Poisoner's Handbook. You can also watch the film version on PBS. And thanks to filmmakers John Portanova and the husband and wife duo of John and Lottie Knowles. And thanks to Joe Uchel for introducing us to some of his fellow movie nerd friends. Thanks to Joe DeSoe for his production help. And thanks to WBEZ and WCQS, our home stations. Thank you for listening on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. Show Nerdette some love by throwing us some stars on iTunes. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear.
0: Do your homework. Do your homework. We love you, nerds. Love. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO.